Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Uh, if, you had, if you hadn't known, we're busy going through the book of 1 Peter under the title Elect Exiles. Uh, you'll find that in verse 1 of chapter 1. But we're already in chapter 2, and uh, here's how I want to go. I want to jump straight into the text, and then we're going to look at what it's saying for us today. So let's read from chapter 2, verse 11 through to 17. Now, actually, what Peter's going to introduce to us goes all the way into chapter 3, but we can't do it all in one go. So I'm breaking it down into three parts. We're going to do this week up to verse 17, then next week we'll finish chapter 2, and then chapter 3 starts with the same theme. Um, But let's read from verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter, do you know the context? would be a a, a normal question for a first century reader. We must remember this book was written around the time of AD 65, more or less. It's during the emergence of an emperor who was probably the most vile in all history, Emperor Nero. You can do a little bit of research about him yourself, and you will be shocked And so Peter structures his argument firstly with a negative statement and then with a very positive few verses. The negative statement we find in verse 11 and the positive statement we find from verses 12 through 17. The negative goes like this, that if we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, it will involve a crafty war. Now notice it in verse 11. He says this, Beloved, Speaking to the people of God, that's an endearing term. It's a covenantal term. The church, the elect exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He says it twice. We're going to revisit that a little bit later. But sojourners is wanderers, pilgrims, and exiles. Here's what he's saying. To abstain. From the passions of the flesh. These are Christians. 
This says a lot about how we understand the sinful nature, even of believers. Yes, we've been liberated through Christ and His blood from the power of sin, but we have not yet been liberated from the presence of sin. That will happen when Jesus comes again. And so there are passions in our flesh. There are sins that we still war with. Look what he says. The passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so there is a battle to be fought. There is a, a crafty war that needs to be engaged in. And there is a contrast that he sets up here between this internal war. Notice it's internal. It's in the soul, right? And it's your flesh. It's got nothing to do with the emperor. You, you would think possibly that Peter might have said, let's take up arms and let's wage war with the emperor. But he doesn't say that. He introduces this theme of honoring all people, including the emperor, Firstly, with where does the battle actually take place? What type of war as Christians do we engage in? And it's an internal fight. We are not those who wage war externally. We fight against the passions of our old life and we are contending for our souls. And so the only time we are urged towards war is with our own flesh. We do not war against other flesh. Can you see how he establishes that right up front? And the reality is that these people, the early church to whom Peter was writing, did have enemies on the outside. They did have enemies on the not only the inside, the flesh, but also on the outside, other flesh. Those who were hating them. Those who were persecuting these early Christians. But notice the implication is we don't hate back and we don't fight back. Rather, like Jesus, we love and pray for them. Now this is massively counterintuitive, especially in a first century setting. That we are not to wage war on the flesh around us, including the emperor and Rome, the rule of Rome. No, no, no. We're not a revolutionary movement. We're a transforming movement. The power of the gospel transforms us from the inside. It's like a little bit of yeast that gets sown into communities and cultures and families and it begins to change from the inside out. And so this moves him then to a fairly lengthy exposition on how then should we behave towards outsiders. If, if, if the battle and the war that we wage is an internalized battle, then how do we respond to those on the outside? And he picks up on this theme in a positive way. The second one, the second big idea here is that a life that pleases God involves wise witness. So there's a crafty war and there is wise witness. In verse 12, he picks up on it. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, among outsiders, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
So now notice that they are calling Christians and the faith of Christians and the work of Christians evil. They're calling good evil. They're calling Christians evildoers. He's saying that can be undone. How? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then down to verse 17, he sums it all up. He says, honor everyone. He's got outsiders in mind. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, those around you, the believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so let's look at this instruction from 12 through 17 under three primary headings. We're going to talk about an attitude that we need to have, an approach we need to maintain, and an answer that we give. Firstly, an attitude to adopt. Notice in verse 13 what the author says about human institutions or human government. Remember, he's speaking into a very hostile Roman rule. Verse 13, he says, Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The first thing I want you to see here is that civil government is a human institution. It's not a divine institution. Civil government, civil society, the role and the place of government is given and arranged by common sense. And this common sense practice of human institutions is given by God under his common grace. And so common sense at a human level's level functions underneath the divine providence of God under his common grace. And so what is he saying to this new church, this early church community that are being persecuted from the outside? He's saying to them that although you are a chosen race, remember verse 9, just go back and Glance your eye at verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. However, you are not to live as Israel did under the old covenant. You are not that type of nation. Israel in the Old Testament were established as a theocracy. This was their governmental Form. They were a theocracy under God. God ruled the nation of Israel and he enforced that rule on all peoples. And Peter is saying we no longer exist in that form. We no longer function as believers. Yes, you are a holy nation, but you are no longer a theocracy. And what God had instituted for Israel has now been rendered obsolete by the new covenant in Christ. In other words, there is no divine mandate for a political system. There is no biblical political system. There is no one ideal biblical political system that is universally binding on all people everywhere. The point that Peter is making here is that politics and governments 
are human institutions. Why? Because we belong to the kingdom of God. And so as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. And so at a human level, governments can take on different forms, and that's okay. There is not one mandated divine way of doing government at a human level. And the goal of human government is to keep peace and order. Notice verse 14. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the ultimate goal of human governments. Now when we think through human institutions like governments, we realize that Throughout history, there have been many different forms, and that's partly what Peter is pointing out, that there isn't a one-size-fits-all for all countries. For example, in the United Kingdom, they have a limited monarchy with a parliamentary democracy. In the USA, it's a federal democratic republic. Other countries like China, it's a single-party state, and in other similar settings, you have absolute monarchs where there is very little freedom. All that to say that we could possibly, I think as Westerners, agree with Winston Churchill. who said this, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <clears throat> I love that. When I read it, I thought I have to fit this in here somewhere. And so as elect exiles... There is no thus saith the Lord in terms of whether it should be this way or that way, more left or more right, more freedom, less freedom. There is no binding political agenda other than it being a human institution functioning with common sense. Now, herein lies the problem. Common sense is no longer so common. We belong to a kingdom, and yet we live in this world. And so, how are we to respond then? Are we to withdraw? You know, hey, I'm from, I'm from another world, essentially. I belong to another kingdom. And so we could say, well... Ah, forget about this world and its people and its problems. I belong to another kingdom, so let's just withdraw. Is that what we should do? Well, he responds to that potential objection in verse 13. He says, no, 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 submit to. Look at that. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Wow, really, Peter? So Christians are to willingly submit to human governments as an act of obedience to God. For the Lord's sake, he says. In verse 14, he says this. He says that we are to submit to governors as sent by him. In other words, what's behind all human institutions is not only the common grace of God, but the living God who upholds the provision for government in the world. And they are put there by God 
to do a particular role, and we are given that they are to limit evil and promote good. Now, having said that, I know that your mind is already saying, well, they're not doing a good job, really, aren't they? And we'll, we'll get to that. But there's one other thing I just want to mention. Because is this just a blanket obedience? Is this just a blanket submission? Whatever the government tells us to do, we submit for the Lord's sake. And the answer is obviously no. There are examples in the Bible where the apostles were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. In Acts 4 verse 12, they responded to that command and they said, we must obey God rather than men. And so there are situations and circumstances where if governments overreach and begin to command our consciences contrary to the word of God, then we disobey. Now, we've just been through a crazy time, haven't we? Where we are seeing governments in some areas overreach their mandate. And so Christians have struggled with this. Is this a situation where, you know, they've said, oh, you can only have 150 people in church, or only 50 now, or, you know, are we going to disobey? Is this, a, is this a situation? And it's been complex, and some Christians have fallen on either side. I think that it's been a crisis, a humanitarian crisis. I don't think this has been a religious targeted endeavor. I don't think the governments of the world are trying to necessarily take aim at Christians. And so I don't think they've been saying, well, stop preaching and, and stop saying what you're saying. And so I don't think we've had to go that far. But we just need to monitor it, right? But let's move on. That's the attitude in the context of which we see ourselves. Second thing we are to see here is that there is a particular approach. Why then? What's the point of submitting to human institutions? Why is Peter suggesting this? And the obvious answer is that as Christians, we are to be good citizens. We are to be upstanding, law-abiding citizens, but in a particular way, in a distinct way. Unique way, which is why he says this in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles. In other words, he establishes a reality right up front that although you are to submit to human institutions, it's temporary. You are pilgrims passing through. This is not your ultimate home. This is not a forever deal. You belong to another kingdom. You, you are part of another citizenship. And so it's, he's establishing hope here because if, if, if the government around me is wicked and evil and I'm to submit to it, what hope do I have? Well, the hope of the believer is that this is just temporary. This, I'm just an exile. I'm a, I'm a sojourner passing through. We are temporary residents. This isn't our permanent residence. And so here's the balance that Peter is after. Just because this world is not our home, the temptation could be, well, let's just withdraw. Let's withdraw into our little bubble, and let's become a little religious subculture. And Peter says, no, don't do that. 
Don't be a bomb shelter community. Don't be a bomb shelter church where you just ignore the world and, and to forget about the world and you never engage with culture and you just become a little Christian bubble. Peter says, no, don't do that. But neither does he say, do we just absorb everything in the world. He doesn't want us to capitulate and just blend in. And so what is he after? Well, there's a third way. It's not withdraw, and it's not just absorb. The third way is this in verse 16. Live, he says, as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There is the hope. Okay, I'm a sojourner and an exile, but I have a mission. I have a mandate. I need to live here as a servant of God. And part of my role is to distinguish between good and evil. Do you see that? One of the temptations is to use your freedom to do as you please. And he's saying, don't do that. That's what the world's going to do. The world is going to confuse good and evil. And evil is going to be called good, and good is going to be called evil. But as Christians, as servants of God, don't abuse your freedom. Cherish your freedom. Cherish your freedom and don't use it as a cover-up for evil. Make sure there's a clarity about you regarding good and evil. Gosh, you know, when I first read this text, I thought, oh, man, what am I going to say about this? Is this even relevant to today? And the more I studied it, I was like, oh, my word, this is incredibly relevant. I mean, what's happening in our world today? What's happening in our world today is a blurring of this distinction between what's good and evil. And it's tragic. And so Peter says, as Christians, you're free. You're free, firstly, from the, the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, and you're free from the bondage of sin. In other words, his exhortation is, you have every means as a servant of God to be a better citizen than everyone else. Because you've been set free. You don't have to earn your worth. You don't have to prove your worth. You're free. Your identity is in God. And so cherish your freedom. Cherish your freedom by refusing to abuse your freedom, which is what the world will do. And so as Christians, these early church Christians refused to participate in emperor worship. That was good. And they refused to live the immoral life that the pagans were living, and that was good. But by doing that, they were accused of being bad citizens. Think about it. No, we're not going to go worship the emperor. No, we're not going to participate in all the rituals of emperor worship. We're not going to do that because we want to honor God. And we're not going to live the immoral life like the pagans do. And so what does the society out there start to say about these Christians? Well, look at these guys. They're bad citizens. They're really bad people. And we, in many ways, we have the same situation today. If you, if you do not embrace someone else's view of tolerance, 
then they can't tolerate you. Does that make sense? The irony of that is remarkable. If you don't receive my view, my freedom view, the freedom that's now being abused in culture, and what I mean by that is the confusing of good and evil. Let's get real. If you do not affirm the LGBTQI agenda, then we will refuse you. We will not let you speak at the workplace. We will even fire you. There's a situation in one of our churches down in Cape Town recently where a young man felt compelled to not participate in an event. And so he couldn't fulfill his job because he felt like it was abusing his conscience and conviction. And so instead of just putting someone else in the role for that particular case, he lost his job. And so we will be intolerant. Those who cry out for tolerance are intolerant. We will boycott your business. We will accuse you of hate speech. We will sue you. And so what these Christians and Christians today find themselves is in a situation where we are made out to be bad neighbors. We are the bad citizens. And Peter wants to equip us with the means of overcoming those objections. And so here's his suggestion in verse 17. He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Really? Wow. In a time when people worshipped the emperor as God, Peter says, Yes, don't worship him. Don't worship him. You fear God. You worship God. But that doesn't mean you belittle the emperor. And so as Christians, I think we've done a poor job sometimes at how we see other religions or how we speak of other people's moral beliefs or political views. No, you, you fear God. You don't have to participate in those moral behaviors, you don't have to participate. It's okay. Hold to your convictions. But whatever you do, don't demonize other people. Honor them. Honor everyone, he says. Yes, there's a unique love in the church. There's a unity and a love in the body of Christ. And so Peter says, no, don't participate in emperor worship and don't participate in immoral behavior. Keep good and evil clear in your minds, but honor everyone. Even if they don't think like you, even if they don't believe like you, even if they persecute you and hate you, don't hate them in return. Honor them. Why, Peter? Well, because everyone is made in the image of God. And this is a profoundly challenging message for us today. We are a, a highly segregated culture, aren't we? We are extremely race and class orientated. And Peter is calling us to honor all people of all different forms and colors and shapes and sizes. Honor everyone, he says, even those whom we disagree with. And again, I think as Christians, we've done a poor job of 
learning the balance between holding on to our convictions. This is what we believe. There is only one God. The Christian God is the only God. And therefore honor people of other religions. That's what Peter is telling us to do. It's what Scripture is telling us to do. You don't have to honor their doctrinal positions, because false doctrine is always false doctrine, but honor the people. You can disagree with them while honoring them. We have to recover this practice, church. We can disagree with people's moral choices, their, their identities, however they want to frame themselves. We can strongly disagree while honoring. And so Peter's calling us to a different standard. We are to honor those with whom we differ. At the same time, we don't back away from our convictions. John MacArthur said it this way. He said, tolerance towards people is a godly virtue, but tolerance towards false teaching is sin. I didn't put it up. I should have. Let me say it again. Tolerance towards people is a godly virtue, but tolerance towards false teaching is sin. It's interesting that how, how we've actually switched that around these days. We've, we've got it all the way wrong way around. Even the modern church has got this the wrong way around. We're, we're tolerant with sin and intolerant with people. It's, it's a sad day. Notice the Middle term there, love the brotherhood. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require us to be together on this. It's going to require us to, to embrace this ethic, this approach together. We're going to need each other, church. It's going to get hard. It's going to get harder and harder. If we hold on to our convictions and the world out there is blurring good and evil, calling evil good and good evil, it's going to get harder for us. And the final thing he wants to say and show us here in point three is that we have an answer to give. Why, why should we live this way? Why should we act this way? Why should we honor everyone, including those who abuse power and authority like the emperor would have? Well, Peter says that he wants us to live this way for the glory of God. He wants us to live this way for the glory of God, for, for the praise of God, and for witness Worship and witness for the Lord's sake. Verse 13. Verse 15, it's the will of the Lord. Verse 16, as servants of God. Verse 17, fearing God. For the glory of God. To reflect Christ-likeness. We show honor to dishonorable people in positions of authority for the sake of the Lord. So that even when we disagree with them, we are willing to do it in humility and kindness. Because their authority, we know, is not ultimate. We have a king of all kings. We have a lord above all lords, and we belong to his kingdom. And so we're not intimidated by lesser kings and lesser kingdoms. And so it's for worship, 
to honor the Lord, we honor everyone. But also it's for witness. Notice this in verse 15, and I'm bringing this to a close now. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, at first I read it, I thought, wow, that's, that's quite harsh. You know, that he's calling them both ignorant and foolish. And, and, and I get it now that I've studied this. It's because of the blurring of good and evil. And the, the, the foolishness of it is that everyone actually has an idea of what is good, but we're too afraid to actually honor it and uphold it. And so what we do is we say, oh, what's good for you is, is okay, because what's good for you might not be good for them. So actually, you want good, but now you've just destroyed what's good. In order to have good, you need to have a standard, right? You need to have a position. It's just so messy out there. And so what does Peter say? What's, what's the solution? He says that by doing good, show them what's good. Don't just tell them what's good. Show them what's good. Order your life. Order your finances. Order your body. Order your family. Order your marriages. Show them the goodness of God. Show them the Christian way. That by doing good, by being not just good citizens, but good and faithful Christians, you put to silence those who accuse you. In other words, he's saying we have an opportunity here for the gospel. Our very lives become an apologetic answer. We can be better neighbors, better citizens. We can be more compassionate, more generous, more engaged in the care of others than anybody else. Because we're free people. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it, in Matthew 5. Let them see your good works so that they may praise your Father in heaven. You see, he's saying our good works, our, our, our new life that we live is a means of shutting their mouths. He says it in verse 12. Look at it again. He says, keep your conduct, lifestyle, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Not just hear them. We've done quite a bit of that as the church. But there's been a bit of an inconsistency between what we say and what we do. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so I submit to you that this is what it means to be an elect exile. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven, living in the kingdoms of this world, not withdrawing, but not blending in, holding on to our convictions, but not fighting them, rather fighting our own flesh, so that we win the war for our souls and we through that, show the world our good deeds. And through loving kindness and thoughtful engagement, we can bear witness to our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so rich. It's so instructive, it's so relevant, written so long ago, and yet incredibly pertinent to our hour. 
and our day. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with courage. We pray that you would fill us with this attitude. That we would be clear on our convictions. That we would be clear as to what your word calls good and evil. And that we would not blur those lines. But at the same time, we would live honorably and patiently with those who do blur those lines. We're not here to belittle them. We're not here to demonize them. We're here to show them by our good works and our good deeds. That the way of God is not just a commandment, but it's a lifestyle. And so help us, Lord, to firstly fear God. Fear God. And in so doing, obey Him. And at the same time, help us to love one another, the brotherhood, the church. And then we can honor everyone. Even the emperor. Even the rulers who are so bad at ruling. Thank you that we are free people. And we cherish that freedom. But we also don't abuse it. We ask for wisdom. We're in a crafty war with our flesh, but we ask for wisdom with outsiders. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.